Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Uh, what things is he talking about? After what things? Um, basically, we're at chapter 4, so what things is he talking about? He's talking about the events or the things that, he's, that we've been reading about and studying about, chapters 1 through 3. If you've been here long enough, you've, I've been pounding this into everybody's head, but we have a divine outline for the book of Revelation in chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus told John to write the things which you have seen. What were the things that he had seen? Well, it was chapter 1, Jesus in his resurrected glory. That's who, what he saw in chapter 1. Write the things which you have seen. And then the things which are. What things which are? Well, that's chapters 2 and 3, which is the churches, the letters to the churches, uh, the churches that existed. And it's also letters to the churches that have existed all down through the ages, even to our day to our church in this age. And so the churches which are, which were, excuse me, which were in existence at the time of the writing of Revelation. And then finally, the things which will take place after this, after these things. Uh, and that word after this is the Greek word metatauta. The reason why I bring that up to you is because in chapter 4, verse 1, it opens with that Greek word metatauta. After these things... After these things, metatauta, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you the things which must take place after this. Metatauta again, it's like the Lord is trying to really communicate something to us. Now, there are a lot of different interpretations to the book of Revelation. Uh, you know, there's people that are amillennial, premillennial. Um, I don't know what other millennials you can be, mid-millennials, I don't know, whatever. But, you know, there's all these different interpretations of the book of Revelation. And there's some people who look at these prophecies in the book of Revelation, and they look at it in a historic context in the sense that these things have already occurred, uh, that they were fulfilled before the traditional date of the book, which the traditional date of the book is around 95, I think, think in 96 AD, written by John the Apostle. Um, and they think that some of these things that we're reading about were fulfilled during the Roman invasion and destruction of Jerusalem. But there's a problem with that interpretation, because Jesus here is clearly telling John to write the things that would take place after this, after 95, 96 AD. So um, one thing that's also significant in the in uh, in the book of Revelation that we've come to so far. The word churches, ecclesia, churches occurs 19 times in chapters 1 through 3. It occurs zero times. It does not occur anymore in chapters 4 through 21. And then again, once in, ch in chapter 22, and Jesus is excluding, uh, concluding, excuse me, exhortation to the church. So for all these coming up chapters, chapters 4 through 21, the church is never mentioned one time. Why is that? Well, I think it's safe to assume that chapters 4 through 22 describe events that will take place after the church age, which we are living in right now. So if that's the case, 
where is the church when all of these events in chapters 4 through 22 are take uh, chapters 4 through 22 take place well i think john gives us a clue here in what he describes in verse 1 he says behold i saw a door standing open in heaven and the first verse excuse me the first voice which i heard was like a trumpet speaking with me now we have heard that once before in chapter 1 verse 10 when John first received his revelation there on the island of Patmos, he says in verse 10 of chapter 1, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. In verse 15 of chapter 1, he describes Jesus' voice. He says, his voice was as the sound of many waters. Uh, so we have this description of Jesus' voice, and it's as of a trumpet. Not a sound of a trumpet, but as of a trumpet. When you think of that, a trumpet... I know if you hear a trumpet playing, it's, it's pretty clear. It's distinct. You can tell when a trumpet is playing. And, and in the Old Testament and through the, uh, through the, through the Bible times, the, the, temp, uh, excuse me, the, the trumpet was used for a purpose, a distinct purpose. It was to rally the troops, the tribes of Israel. It was for warning. It was for different events like that. And so there was a purpose behind the rallying, uh, the trumpet blast. And so he hears this voice as of a trumpet saying, come up here. And this is the Greek word anabino. It means to go up, either literally or figuratively, to arise. What is John, what is John experiencing here? Well, I think Paul is speaking about it or gives us uh, a, uh, an explanation. In 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 16 through 17. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. That word caught up in verse uh, 17 is the word harpazo. And that's where we get the Latin word. The Latin translation of that is raptured. That's where we get the rapture of the church. The, the, you might say the rapture of the church. That it doesn't even occur in the Bible. Well, it's harpazo. It does occur in the Bible. It's just the Latin interpretation of it is raptured. And so Jesus says, come up here and I will show you the things which must take place after this. What things take place after this? Well, chapters 4 and chapters 5 is kind of like an interlude between the church age and the events of chapter 6 through 19. Chapter 6 through 19 is the wrath of God poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. And so verse 2, he says, Immediately I was in the Spirit. Immediately I was in the Spirit. That word immediately is the Greek word which means directly, at once, very soon. So John was already in the Spirit on chapter 1. So it kind of go, wait a minute. He was already in the Spirit. What is he referring to right now? I don't really know the answer to that. But what I think, if you think back, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2, he's writing about a man, and I believe it was Paul himself. But he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not, know, do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Again, that word caught up, harpazo, or raptured. 
Paul, at that point, he didn't know if it was a bodily, uh, if he was bodily caught up to heaven or not. All he knew that he was in the third heaven. He, he was caught up there. He was, he was there. And all John knows for sure, this isn't a vision. He's there. Now, what's interesting between Paul and John, that verse that I quoted in 2 Corinthians 12 two, Paul in that epistle was transported in space to the third heaven. Not in time, but in space. But here, John is both transported in space again to the third heaven, but also to a future in time, to the things that will take place after this. So the subject of chapter 4, and there actually is a subject of chapter 4, it's what is heaven like? Because this is what we get, this is the glimpse that John had of heaven. This is what you and I are going to see when we are in heaven. So the first thing John sees in heaven, you know, you always hear the jokes, right? Peter, St. Peter at the pearly gates, you know, and there's all those jokes about how to get into the heaven and all that stuff. Or, or we read about the streets of gold or, or, or we think about our, our loved ones. Man, I, I can't wait to see my loved ones when I, when I get to heaven. Or maybe you've got this picture, man, there's going to be angels floating around on, on, on clouds playing their harps. What does John see? The very first thing that he sees when he gets to heaven it's not the pearly gates. It's not the streets of gold. It's not even his uncle Mortimer. It's not angels with harps. It's a throne set in heaven. That's the first thing he sees, a throne, and one sat on the throne. This is what grabs John's attention. And it's not just a throne that grabs his attention, but it's an occupied throne. This is very important. You know, think about John. John here, he's on the island of Patmos, right? He was banished to the island. Uh, church tradition is that he was actually, they tried to persecute him. They tried to martyr him by dipping him in a vat of boiling oil. And he survived that, miraculously survived that. And he's been persecuted now. And so he's here on this island. And, and, and what a thing for a person who's going through persecution experience. Hey, God's on the throne it doesn't matter what man does to me god's on the throne maybe you're going through a difficult time right now there's things in your life that are just overwhelming you or or you're like why is this going on or why are these people doing these things to me remember god's on the throne i think that's such an important thing our lord god reigns the lord god reigns you know that occurs about nine times that phrase the lord reigns or god reigns about nine times in the bible I'll read a couple, just for example, Psalm 115, verse 3. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. God's on the throne. It's such a comforting thing, especially when you're going through a difficult time. But you know, the throne alone is not what John tries to describe. He doesn't say, well, I saw this throne and it was, you know, it had four legs and it was gold. He doesn't even describe the throne to us, how, how big it is, what it looks like, what it's made of. He says, behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And what he wants to describe to us is the one sitting on the throne. But he has a problem. You see, in John four twenty four, Jesus said, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. How do you describe in human terms God, who's a spirit? How do you give a physical description to him? John can't adequately describe God in human terms in sense of, well, he had gray hair. He, had, you know, he can't do that. And so he uses similes. A simile is a figure of speech 
involving the comparison of one thing with another thing of a different kind. And it's used to make a description more emphatic or vivid, a way that we can understand it. And it was fascinating as John uses the colors of gems as similes to describe the glory of God. And I think it's significant. Verse 3, And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. So let's take a look at that, like a jasper. Now, uh, we have jaspers nowadays that, you know, they're, they're beautiful stones. We, my wife is a rock hound. I've kind of adopted the, the rock houndishness, but she's, she's by nature a rock hound. And she's got picture jaspers. And they're really cool because there are striations in it. But when you look at it, sometimes we have one that's like a tree, I think, on a rock or something. Like it's, they're beautiful. But this is not the jasper that is being described here. Later on in chapter 21, jasper there is described as most precious and like crystal. It was a stone of brilliant and transparent light. Some people think that the jasper that's being described here was actually a diamond. What is a diamond, a brilliant, transparent light speak of? It speaks of purity and holiness. God is pure. God is holy. Another interesting thing is that in the Old Testament, the jasper was the last of the 12 stones that was inserted on the high priest's breastplate. Each stone, the high priest had his breastplate, and it had 12 stones, and each stone represented one tribe of the nation of Israel. And the jasper was the last of those 12, and it represented the tribe of Benjamin, which was the youngest. And what's interesting is the name Benjamin means son of my right hand. And then we get the sardius stone. A sardius stone was bright red. In fact, some people think it was a carnelian agate, which my wife would have got carnelian agate. You would too, right, Carolyn? <laughs> a bright red stone. Maybe even, you know, a ruby. I'm not sure, but it was bright red. And it speaks of judgment and sacrifice. Now, again, in the Old Testament, the sardius stone was also one of the stones that was on the high priest's breastplate. It was the one that occupied the first place in the first row of the high priest's breastplate, and it represented the tribe of Reuben, who was the firstborn. And his name means behold a son. So we have these these similes that are trying to communicate, John's trying to communicate to something, something to us about God, his purity, his holiness, judgment, sacrifice represented by these stones. And then the fact that these were the first and the last stones of the high priest's breastplate that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. In the book of Isaiah, the Lord God Jehovah refers to himself as the first and the last. In Revelation, the Lord Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And then they get the meaning of the names of the tribes of the stones represented by the Jasper and the Sardius. We have the one stone, Behold a Son, the Sardius. Well, we know Jesus Christ is the first first begotten Son. And then the Son of my right hand, the the, the, uh, Jasper stone. Well, we know right now, according to scriptures, that Jesus is sitting on the right hand of God. So all of this raises a question in our mind. Is John seeing Jesus on the throne? Or is he seeing God the Father on the throne? When we get to chapter 5, which we won't today, but in chapter 5, verse 6, 
John is again, he's still there describing things. And he says in verse 6, in the midst of the throne stood a lamb as though it had been slain. We, we know right away he's speaking of Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he takes a scroll from him who's sitting on the throne, which we would assume that's God the Father. And then both chapters 4 and chapters 5, we're going to read about the seven spirits of God that are before this throne. So what is John seeing, or who is John seeing on the throne? I think John is seeing God in his triune nature on the throne. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So I think we see the, the a beautiful picture of the Trinity right there on the throne. And then the other thing that John sees, he describes to us, is a rainbow around the throne. And it wasn't a multicolored rainbow. This rainbow was a color emerald. Well, you know, it's interesting. A rainbow only occurs four times in the Bible. In Genesis, after the flood, remember God said, I put my rainbow in the sky. It's a reminder of his promise to never destroy the earth again with the flood. The second time it occurs, it was in Ezekiel's vision of the throne of God. And then here in chapter 4, again, John sees a rainbow around the throne of God. And then later on in chapter 10, on the head of an angel that had just come from the throne of God, there's a rainbow. So in the Bible, the rainbow is always associated with God's presence and God's grace. What does this suggest? It suggests God's covenant of kindness, God's peace, and God's mercy. And why the color emerald? Well, emerald was a precious stone of rich green color. In fact, the word emerald, the word translation, the translation of it almost always refers to vegetation. You think of green herbs or green grass or, or you know, we think of green things like springtime, right? We'll, we'll be anxious when the snow's gone and, you know, it starts warming up and you see the grass starts coming up, all the new growth. Well, what does this speak of? I think this speaks of the newness of the covenant. It's new and it's fresh. Jeremiah said this in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, and this is a verse that I love. I cling to this verse. Though the Lord's through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God's mercies, they're new every morning. So we have this throne of God and a rainbow. But what is a throne? When you think of a throne, what do you think of? You think of a king, right? Somebody who's ruling and reigning. Somebody who can do whatever they want off with his head you know you think of those things right somebody can just say hey uh, take a census of all the land of israel you know someone on the throne can do whatever they want they then nobody can say you can't do that why because they're in ultimate authority but we also have this rainbow representing god's promise to not destroy mankind with the flood we see god's grace there so picture this god who's on the on the throne he's free to do whatever he pleases and nobody can say what are you doing god nobody can because he's ultimate in authority but he chooses he chooses to limit himself to his covenant of grace that's a beautiful thing he's free to do as he pleases but he chooses to limit himself to his covenant promises so that's the first thing that John catch, that catches John's eye, the throne and, and one who sits on the throne. Then he sees what is around the throne. That's what we'll look at next. Verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold 
on their heads. Well, right away we think, well, well, who are these 24 elders? We'll find out in chapter 5. Again, we're not going to get there today. But in chapter 5, those 24 elders have a song that they sing. The song is, in chapter 5, it says, For you were slain, they're speaking of Jesus, they're the Lamb. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Some people say, well, those 24 elders, that must be angels. Well, it can't be angels, because no angel has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Only mankind has. These 24 elders, they're clothed in white robes. In Revelation 19, verse 8, we find out that that's the righteous deeds of the saints. We're clothed in Christ's righteousness. These 24 elders, they have crowns on their heads. Now, the word crowns, there's two words for crowns in the Greek. One is the diadem, which is what a royalty would wear, and the other was a stephanos, which is what in the, in the Olympic Games you would, you would receive a wreath on your head if you won your competition. That's what's being described here. These are uh, crowns of victory in games, uh, military battles, things like that. They're woven of oak, ivy, myrtle, or olive leaves or flowers. So these elders have these stephanos, these, these, these crowns of victory put, placed on their heads. And they are seated on thrones. Now some people say, well, uh, you know, are these the apostles? Uh, Matthew chapter 19, Jesus told the 12 apostles that they're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel during the millennium. So I don't think that's what's being pictured here. What's interesting, if you go to the Old Testament, and you know when you're reading through the book of Revelation, there's so much Old Testament pictures. If you don't have a good understanding of the Old Testament, sometimes Revelation can be kind of overwhelming. But if you go back to the Old Testament, in the Old Testament there were so many priests that they were divided into 24 courses of priests. Each course represented a group of priests. And a representative priest from each course would take their turn serving in the temple. Remember when John the Baptist, his father, Zacharias, was in the temple. He was of that one of the courses. This is what, this is what, is, what I'm talking about. The word elders, by the way, is the word presbyteros. We get the word Presbyterian. And no, it, it doesn't mean that there's only 24 Presbyterians in heaven. Um, but I think what, if you look at this, the best way to look at this is to think of these 24 elders as being representative of the church. Based on their song in chapter 5, uh, you know, there's more than, than 24 tribes, tongues, and nations. So these are representatives, these elders around the throne. And it's also interesting that they're around the throne. You know, it's not like a row of, of, of thrones next to each other. They're all around. In other words, there's not one throne that's in closer proximity to the other thrones. Although the disciples at one time was hoping that that be the case. But that's not the case. And I think that's a good reminder for you and I. Sometimes we feel like, you know, maybe you feel spiritually prideful this morning. You know, I'm closer to the Lord than others because I do this or that or whatever. Don't feel closer to the Lord. Because these thrones, they're around. They're not next to. They're, they're around the throne. If you feel second class, you feel like, man, I, I just, I'm the worst of the, of the Christians. I'm, I'm the worst of God's children. Don't. We're all equally around the throne of God. I think it's such a beautiful thing to remember. 
Now, from a chronological standpoint, again, chapters 2 through 3 describe the church age. Chapters 6 through 19 describe the Great Tribulation. Chapters 4 through 5 are kind of tucked right in between. And I think what we're seeing here is the rapture of the church and the judgment seat of Christ, known as the Bema Seat Judgment. It's not for salvation. It's not a judgment of, of salvation, but it's when the church is in heaven and we receive crowns. We receive awards for works done in the body of Christ. I think that's what's being pictured here. So what's the third thing John notices? as It's, it's, it's what's proceeding from the throne. Look at verse 5. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were, were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Again, Put your Old Testament hat on. What does that remind you of? It reminds us of Mount Sinai. Remember when the children of Israel, they were, they were coming through the wilderness and God was, was, had, had to meet them at Mount Sinai and, and, and he would speak to the children of Israel and, and all that they saw was so terrible and fierce. They saw lightning and thunder and smoke and it was just, it was so frightening. They said, Moses, Moses, don't let God speak to us anymore. You, you go, you listen to God. We don't want to hear his voice. It's so frightening. This is what's being pictured here. Thunder and lightning almost always precede severe storms. We see that here in the Midwest. You know, you start seeing the thunder and the lightning, and it's getting darker and darker, and it's getting ominous and ominous. Sometimes, sometimes the sky is kind of a greenish color. You go, whoa, we've got a big storm coming. Well, this is what's appearing here. The big storm, of course, in this context, is God's wrath poured out on the world, chapters 6 through 19 which is why I believe at this point the church is no longer on the earth because we're not appointed to wrath, the Bible says. And then we have these seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, and we don't even have to guess because we're told they're the seven spirits of God. In chapter 1, we also saw the sevenfold spirit of God, and that's described in, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, by the way. And then he also sees verse 6, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. So he sees this sea of glass like crystal. And commentators and, and not so commentators, everybody's divided on what this sea of glass represents. It's fascinating. If you read, get five commentaries, you probably get six opinions. It's amazing. Um, one of the things, again, going back to the Old Testament, there was the bronze sea. It was a big, big, a big basin at the entrance to the temple, and the priests washed themselves in this bathing. They used the water there to bathe themselves, to cleanse themselves before they entered the temple. I don't think the significance is, is what it was made of, but what its appearance was. It was of glass and like crystal. Now, I remember one time, uh, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I remember one time going out <clears throat> with my buddy, uh, we went out, we were going to go fishing two different weekends. And one weekend we, we were going out there and the water was, it, it was just, there was, the swells were so bad, the wind was blowing and it was so rough. We're like, man, we can't even get the boat on the water. It was just, we don't want to, you know, we had an open bow boat. It was like, no, we're, we're gonna, it's not a good time to be out on the water. So we said, we'll skip it for today. The next weekend we went out and it was like glass. I mean, it was, there was not a ripple on in the whole San Francisco Bay we went out there. We were shark fishing. It was a lot of fun. But, but uh, I think the picture here is that calmness, that stillness. 
If you think of it in the sense of this bronze sea that where the priests wash themselves, hey, there's no more washing going on. The sacrifices are completed. It's, it's done. It's finished. Now, if it's a solid material like crystal, again, we really don't know. Again, it speaks of clarity of vision, of no impurities. And if God's on his throne, the Bible says nothing's hidden from God's sight. He sees everything that's going on. Again, you're going through a difficult time. Maybe you're being, being mistreated by a coworker or your boss or something. Just remember, God sees how you're being treated. He's on the throne. Nothing is hidden from his sight. That could be good news and bad news, right? If bad news, if you're not walking, if you're sinning, God sees it. Well, the image that's presented here is that there's no obscurity or unrest around the throne of God. Calmness. But that doesn't mean inactivity. There's act, plenty of activity going on. We'll see that here very shortly. Because the fourth thing John sees, or what, no, what he notices, is what's taking place before the throne. He says, and in the midst of, in the second half of verse 6, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. Now I'm reading out of the New King James Version, which I think accurately calls these creatures if you had a king james bible it would say beasts and you know you, right away you get the idea of beasts you think of this animal that's you know uh doesn't have a soul you know just a lower than mankind you know that acts by instinct but that's not that's an unfortunate translation i think new king james translates it a little bit more accurately it's a it's a it's a creature it's a living creature they're intelligent the significance is in their eyes they have eyes full of uh, in front and in back. So they're full of eyes. They're very intelligent. They see what's going on. And we're going to touch on that in a few minutes. Verse 7. The first living creature was like a lion and the seven living, second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Now Ezekiel saw a very similar uh, vision in Ezekiel 1 verse 10. He saw these creatures around the throne there too. He says, as for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man. Each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side. Each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side. Each of the four had the face of an eagle. So what Ezekiel saw was these creatures with four faces, basically, on all different sides. John seems to see one has the face of a lion, one has the face of a calf, one has the face of an eagle, one has the face of a man. Are they the same creatures? Well, could be. I don't really know. It could be. Because if Ezekiel was, you know, if they were moving their heads at that time and Ezekiel was able to see all four faces, maybe they weren't moving their heads and John's just seeing one of each. It's possible. We don't really know for sure. But I think they are the same creatures. The significance of the likeness of their faces. Well, what, what, what does that signify? You know, when you think of the, the, the man, the lion, the eagle, and the ox, you can think of the Gospels, right? Uh, Jesus, uh, Matthew represents the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. We see the, the kingly role of Jesus the Messiah. Uh, Mark uh, is the servant, the suffering servant, and, and that's an ox. You know, an ox is used for plowing, and he's a servant, a servant animal. Uh, the man, Luke. Luke is, is a doctor, and he looks at the humanity of Jesus Christ. And so we see, see a man. And then John deals with the deity of Christ. And, and the eagle is such a beautiful picture of that. It could be that. 
Some people think that it's the standards of the four tribes that led the rest of the tribes of Israel. You know, when, the, when the tribes, they gathered around the throne, uh, excuse me, gathered around the synagogue, or the synagogue, the tabernacle, they, they were in lines, basically. That's an interesting study, by the way. Um, and then when they left the camp, one tribe would go out. Judah would be the first one. Everyone would follow behind Judah, and there would be another group. Uh, and could it be representing those tribes? It's possible. But I think there's one other way to look at this. See, the lion, you think about it in the animal kingdom, it's like the lion's the king of the beasts, right? It's, it's, uh, it, it's known for its majesty among the animal kingdom. The ox, man, there's nothing stronger than an ox, right? Ox is known for its strength among domesticated animals. The eagle, man, the eagle is like the most, the, the supreme of the flying birds. You know, the eagle, he's above all birds. And man, of course, is the greatest of all, all God's creatures because we are created in God's image. We have intellect. We have reason. We have a soul. So I think what we're seeing here, these creatures, these represent the highest and the best of creation. And what all the think of that, all the, the highest and the best of creation, all of these are subject to the one sitting on the throne and are worshiping him. Verse 8, the four living creatures... Each having six wings were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. These are probably the same living creatures that are described by Ezekiel in his vision uh, of the throne of God. And in, in chapter 10 of Ezekiel, he calls them cherubim. What's interesting is Satan was created. Lucifer was created as one of the cherubim. Ezekiel 28, verse 14 says you were anointed you were the anointed cherub who covers i established you you were on the holy mountain of god you walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones lucifer was one of the cherubim remember in genesis god placed a cherub at the entrance to the garden of eden to guard the way to the tree of life when adam and eve were banished from the from the garden of eden cherubim are almost always associated with the presence of god in fact, they figure prominently in, in, the, in the pictures, in the articles in the temple, right? There's cherubim that were engraved on so many different things. There were cherubim that were on the two cherubim that were on the mercy seat um, of the ark that was above the Ark of the Covenant, the cover to the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, in Solomon's temple, there was a pair of colossal-sized cherubim that their wings basically covered. It was like a whole room filled, and these wings went over the entire room in, in Solomon's uh, temple. He says, each having six wings were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. Earlier I mentioned the significances in their description of their eyes, full of eyes around and within. Now, when I read that, you know what I thought right away of? We were just out in Seattle, and, and uh, it was funny. Uh, my, my daughter, she had her sixth child. Uh, five of them are living. One's one's in heaven right now, but but this was the fifth living child, and and uh, we were. Uh, it's funny because my wife and my daughter they they look quite alike, and they also act kind of alike. And so uh, my grandchildren, it's like they had two mothers all of a sudden, you know. And Teresa was telling them what to do. Their mom was telling them what to do. And it was funny. We were in the car one day, uh, and uh, one of the one of my well, was my granddaughter because the rest are boys. 
she and one of the other boys were fighting or they were doing something. And at the same time, my wife was in the middle seat. They were in the way back. My daughter's driving. And so my, my daughter and Teresa at, at the exact same time said, jail, <laughs> you know, and, they, and uh, I'm like, what's going on? And, and all of a sudden, they, it's like they're busted, right? It's like, well, that's a mother, man. They have eyes behind their back of their heads, right? I mean, that's what I thought of when I read this about these, these creatures that have eyes all around, man. Nothing gets past them, just like a mother. Nothing gets past a mother. My mom, man, she'd bust me all the time for stuff. It's like, man, what is the deal with this? Well, think about this. These cherubim, they have eyes not only on the back of their heads, they got eyes all over the place. This speaks of their intelligence, the awareness of their surroundings. What are they around? What are they seeing? They're seeing the throne of God. And what does it cause them to do? It causes them to worship the Lord. Their awareness of their surrounding causes them to continually worship the Lord. And their worship is significant. They, they, they say, holy, holy, holy. Now in the Bible, when someone says something twice, like Jesus says, verily, verily, or truly, truly, it's very significant. But when someone says something three times in Hebrew, it's like the ultimate, I mean, this is the most significant and and so this this worship is is definitely significant it also signifies that their worship is intelligent because they understand what's going on it's not merely based on emotion but it's based on knowledge they understand more than what you and i do they see more than what you and i do and what they see and what they understand causes them to worship the lord it leads them into worship the highest and most significant thing you and I can do is to worship the Lord. You know, sometimes we go through difficult times, and I'm no, no exception. Sometimes it's, it's hard to see that the Lord's on the throne. You know, we have something in front of us, and it's so overwhelming. And, and sometimes, you know, we just, we just get overwhelmed. We get bummed out. We get depressed or whatever. If we would only be like those living creatures and understand God's on the throne, I tell you, we'd be worshiping more. Oh, that the Lord would give us that vision of him on the throne more and more. If we were only more aware of his presence of the Lord in our circumstances in our lives, I think we would worship him more. So verse 9 says, Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Listen, this worship of these creatures... It's contagious. It's so contagious, it causes these 24 elders to worship. Every time those, those four living creatures, which represent the best and highest of creation, whenever they worship, and think about it, these living creatures, they're around the presence of the Lord. They're there constantly. They've spent all their created lives before the throne. And if they have a reason to worship the Lord, how much more do you and I, who the Bible says we've been brought near to the throne, we were once far off, but we've been brought near by the blood of Christ, how much more do we have a reason to worship the Lord than these creatures who never left the presence of the Lord? Like I said earlier, God has not redeemed any angel, but he's redeemed man. Jesus said he who has been forgiven much loves much. I think it's so important for you and I to understand God's grace in our lives. 
And so anyways, whenever these living creatures worship the Lord, those 24 elders, they're not going to be outdone by those living creatures. They fall down before him who sits on the throne and worships him who lives forever and ever because why? they have more reason to worship the Lord than even these living creatures who spent all their life. They've never left the presence of the Lord. And they cast their crowns down before him saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. What's with the casting of the crowns? It's an act of submission and homage. I'm going to read this. It's out of a commentary, so it's not my, me and my, I'm not the super intelligent person. Cicero relates that when Tigranes, whoever he was, the king of the Armenians, was brought to Pompey's camp as a captive, prostrating himself abjectly, Pompey raised him up and replaced on his head the diadem which he had thrown down. This is in a, uh, this is in a old manuscript. Um, but that was kind of the custom. In those days, in the, especially in the Roman Empire, you know, when, when they conquered a kingdom, the king, uh, you know, the king who himself had a crown, they conquered his kingdom. They would basically, he would have those, the, the emperor, whatever, would have the kings come before him and they would, they would set their crowns down to acknowledge that you are greater. And then once they acknowledge him, the, the, the emperor would say, okay, you can put your crown back on as long as you've acknowledged that I'm higher than you. I think that's a picture that we're seeing here. Again, these crowns are not the Greek word for diadems, which kings wear, but they're stephanos, the, the, the crowns that victors wear. And the Bible says that you and I, there's crowns for you and I. There's the crown of righteousness, there's the crown of life, and the crown of glory. And so Paul talks about that Bema seat judgment in 2 Corinthians 5.10. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, each one may receive, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And think about this. We're given these crowns, you and I, the church. We come before the Lord and we see him in his glory and, and his splendor. And, and we're just overwhelmed by his grace because he's brought us near. I mean, we, were, we had no hope of being before the throne of God. And, and we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And all we can do is, Lord, <laughs> I don't deserve this crown. You do. And we just throw it down at him. It's everything. It just goes to you, Lord God. We just give it to you. You might say today, you might say, you know, I don't really, I don't need a crown. I, I'm just going to serve. I don't want you. Believe me, you're going to want to have crowns to be able to throw them down to, at the Lord because he's so worthy. It's like, what else can I give you, Lord? You're so worthy. You're going to want to have crowns. You're going to want to serve the Lord as a Christian in your life, as in the body. So verse 11, it's been known as the, the song of creation. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. F.B. Meyer says this, Originally all things did the will of God. And if creation is now subject to vanity, someday it will be delivered into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. And God, God's will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice that the will of God brought all things into existence and that that will guarantees their ultimate redemption. I mean, that's the reason why we have been created, right? I think of Romans 11.36. I'm going to close with this. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. For of him. Genesis 1.1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. 
Everything was created by God. We are, we are of Him and through Him. The Bible says in Hebrews 1, uh, 1 verse 3 that Jesus is upholding all things by the word of His power. Paul said this in Acts 17, 28, For in Him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. I mean, we are, we, we are, we were created. He created us. He upholds us. The Bible says he holds our, our breath in his hands. Our lives are held by him and sustained by him. And then finally to him. And we're going to see this when we get to Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 and 7. I'll just read this to you. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. So you and I, we were created for a purpose. We were, we were created to become the bride of Christ. And to be married to the to the Lamb, and, and one day that's going to be fulfilled, and you and I are going to be in the presence of the Lord, and that's that's the fulfillment of our life. Maybe in this life right now, your your fulfillment, your your purpose is you know you're earning, learning a starting a career or building a family or you know you're you're amassing whatever you're amassing or whatever. That's not the purpose. Our purpose ultimately is to worship the Lord and to be married to Christ Jesus. That's the ultimate goal. That's the ultimate purpose. Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for uh, this picture that we have of what heaven is like. And Lord, I pray that for all of us here this morning, first and foremost, we will remember that you are on the throne, and that you reign and you rule, Lord, and you have throughout all all our lives throughout all history lord you've reigned on the throne lord i pray that we would be more cognizant of your presence in our lives throughout our day lord that our we would understand lord that eternity would be stamped on our hearts lord and it would be before our eyes that we'd be waiting for the the, the rapture of the church lord god Lord, I, I pray that just as those living creatures worship you, Lord God, that, that that's what we would be doing is worshiping you and living our lives for you because we were purchased by you. And Lord, I pray that, Lord, as you're preparing a bride, Lord, that you'd be preparing us, Lord God, that, because we are the bride, Lord, that you'd be preparing us for that day when we would meet you for the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so we look forward to that, Lord. We thank you for your word this morning. I pray your blessing on each and every person now in Jesus' name. Amen.